to the Seven Figures Podcast, Smart Money Strategies for Women with Sandy Waters. Seven Figures is sponsored by Advantage Federal Credit Union. Today on the show, we hear the headlines about negative interest rates. What does that mean? Is it a real possibility? We'll explain in No Dumb Questions. Plus, becoming a millionaire on a teacher's salary. Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Mark Shug, will explain how you can be rich while earning a modest income. And we'll take a seat at the kids' table. The best way to teach your kids about investing, even when you may not be good at it yourself. All of that today on the 7 Figures Podcast. Here's Sandy Waters. So many people talk about pushing themselves out of their comfort zone. You should be comfortable with being uncomfortable is the famous advice you hear a lot. Okay, this is what comfortable really feels like. Taking control of your money, understanding what's going on, is the most comfortable you will ever feel. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to the Seven Figures podcast, for subscribing, for telling a friend about the show. We love hearing from you, so reach out anytime, sandywaters989 at gmail.com. Tell us how you make it all happen. Our quick money victory shout-out goes to Dave Bluefields. My wife and I are working hard to pay off our house, he said. Should be done by the end of the year, paying a little extra every month to bring down the principal. Brilliant. Once you pay off your house, it is yours. And that right there is the definition of comfort and security. Dave, we are raising a glass to you and your wife. Congrats. There are a lot of people, men, women, people who have money, people who live paycheck to paycheck, who don't always 100% understand some of the financial lingo that's out there. And that is why we start the show with no dumb questions. Our CFP, Erica Cummings, from the Harmony Financial Wellness Group at RBC Wealth Management is here. Hi, Erica. Hello. Happy Friday. Oh, yeah. That feels good, doesn't it? (laughs) Every week it feels good. (laughs) Negative interest rates. It's a headline that we've seen, but what does it mean and how can it impact us, you know, the common people? So the headlines have been obviously just cluttered with all kinds of information about how we are going to address this pandemic from an economic standpoint, what the government can do and the ways that they can help to stimulate the economy with so many people feeling the hardships. So there's two ways that the government can basically step in. One of them is is by fiscally stepping in, which is what we saw with those stimulus checks that we received. Uh, We can cut taxes. Those are ways that the government can actually stimulate the economy. We also have the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve controls what's called monetary policy. Monetary policy is the adjustment of interest rates, and that basically affects how much it costs for every single layer of our economy to borrow money. So starting from borrowing from the government to banks borrowing from each other, to banks loaning to corporations, to banks loaning to you, and so on and so forth. So that all starts at the top. So interest rates are basically one of the main 
levers the Federal Reserve uses to adjust that monetary policy and maintain balance in the U.S. economy. And they've done this for years and years and years and years. So this is not something new. So the central bank adjusts the federal funds rate to guide how individual banks and lenders determine their own rates. So how do they determine how much we are going to pay for our mortgages and how much we're going to pay for credit cards and things like that? So the Fed raises rates, so they make interest rates higher to help cushion the economy against inflation. So we don't want to have too much money, basically, in the system. So they'll make rates higher, which makes borrowing by all of us as consumers and businesses more expensive. Mm. They then do the opposite. They'll lower rates when the country's facing a recession because it encourages borrowing and spending. It's not good when we are not out there spending money. So by lowering rates makes it more appealing for us to go out there and borrow and buy things, all kinds. They lower and they increase depending on the economy. But what about negative rates? What does that mean? If a central bank, and central banks are in every country too, remember. So if a central bank implements what's called negative rates, that means that interest rates fall below 0%. So in theory, negative rates would boost the economy by encouraging consumers and banks to take on more risk through borrowing and lending money. So why do we see that? So typically people hold on to their money and wait when we're in a, a deflationary type of environment. So let's say we're in this pandemic for a long time, or we look at previous recessions where people sit back and say, you know what, this is bad. I guarantee you're going to see Target slash their prices. You're going to see car prices go down. I'm waiting. Maybe the housing market, you feel as if that's going to take a hit too. I'm going to wait. I'm not going to spend my money. So then you see typically people will hold on to their money and wait to see some sort of improvement before they ramp up that spending again. Mm -hmm. So as a result, we can have what's called deflation. And it can really become entrenched in the economy. It actually happened during the Great Depression where people just stop spending. So negative rates fight that by making it more costly to hold onto money. So it's the opposite. If you have money in your savings account, you're actually going to pay to keep it there. So then you'll say, well, why am I keeping my money in the bank? I probably should be spending it if it's costing me money to actually hold my money in a savings account. So theoretically, instead of earning interest on your savings in a negative interest rate environment, people who put money into savings would be charged a holding fee by the bank. On the flip side, negative interest rates would make it more appealing to borrow money. So we'd be looking at, you know, loan rates hitting like literally rock bottom. So we have really never seen that in the U.S. We have, in fact, though, seen it in the European Central Bank in 2014. And the Bank of Japan has been fighting this off since basically 1999. Um, so we do have history to look back on and on what this would look like. And we certainly have been hearing some buzz about it. The government has indicated, um, you know, the president has indicated that there, there could be some interest there. And investors in the markets have started betting on, on the potential for the Fed implementing them. So that it's going to keep this in the headlines for a while. So keep in mind, though, that the Federal Reserve has insisted over and over again that they have no they have absolutely no desire to implement negative rates as a tool at all. Okay. Thank you, Erica. What are you working on? How can we follow you? You can follow us on our website at HarmonyFinancialWellness.com. We're also on Facebook at the same name. We have a newsletter every month. We do webinars on a monthly basis. And you can get on our list at Erica.Cummings at RBC.com. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. Thank you.
hear teachers say that they didn't get into teaching to become a millionaire. They're not doing it for the money. Teachers spend their entire career building people up, giving their students the confidence to make the impossible possible. So now it's our turn to build up your confidence if you're a teacher, because pretty much when we talk about personal finance, you guys just close the book. Anybody who earns a modest salary would say it's impossible to be a millionaire. No way am I going to ever be rich. Mark Shug, Emeritus Professor, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and co-author of Teachers Can Be Financially Fit, Economist's Advice for Educators, is here. Hi, Mark. Hi, Sandy. You know, Susan Beecham, who helps us out with our A Seat at the Kids Table segment, referred to you as a legend in economics and finance. <laughs> well, uh, Susan's very kind uh, <laughs> and maybe just a little over the top on that. <laughs> Okay, so how can teachers, and you probably hear that all the time too, right? Teachers will say, well, you know, I don't teach because of the money. I teach because of the love of helping students. Yeah, teachers love their, they love their subjects or they love their students or hopefully they love both. And that's why they go into the game of teaching. And I just, just to kind of reinforce what you just said, uh, just this weekend, we were at a neighborhood block party and a second grade teacher lives in the neighborhood. I told her, hey, you know, I've got a new book called Teachers Can Be Financially Fit. And she looked at me and she got a smile and she says, oh, it's a joke book. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's their and initial reaction. Sure. That sure. was her reaction. And teachers often do feel this way. Yeah. That, that they, and, and I like your other point, too, about connecting to other people with modest income, uh, thinking that they, they didn't go into it to get rich, and that's understandable, but still, um, teachers have some distinct advantages in terms of their work opportunities, uh, but they are worried. I mean, just to echo that a little bit, uh, we did a little survey in preparation for writing the book, and teachers really, by and large, don't think they can do it on their own, uh, with their own salary. They often think they need to depend on spouses or second jobs. They worry about college debt. Uh, and a lot of them express worries about, uh, you know, just living paycheck to paycheck. So what do you tell them? What do you say? What are some of the, the habits that teachers can adopt? Well, you know, the, the secret sauce is that people have to figure out that they they have to uh, spend less than they earn. And, and, and once we can kind of get that idea established, that is not not only people of modest income, especially people of modest income, need to figure out how to save some money. And once we can get that rolling, once that principle is established, then the, of course you have to take action on it. And there's so many easy ways in school districts to try and uh, get some money saved. The school districts, this is in a kind of a two-edged sword here. Most school districts, most public school districts offer a 403B plan. So small amounts of money are taken out of your paycheck, and then you get to decide how that money's going to be managed. Now, this is another one of the issues, though, is a lot of teachers sort of were encouraged to get into insurance-based products, annuities, that tended to be high cost and uh, lower return, and never heard much advice past that. And so we are very clear in the book that you have to, you know, it's in the first chapter, as a matter of fact, is... Uh, someone might have recommended uh, a financial person to you, or here are the three uh, options in your school district. 
well, we have to make sure you're in an alternative for your 403B that makes sure that you, you have access to things like Vanguard and Fidelity and, and things that are likely to have better opportunities for higher return and lower fees. Is that still being recommended? Well, the SEC is actually investigating this right now. There are a couple of firms that are in deep trouble. And the SEC maintains that this is like a trillion dollar problem. Um, so yeah, see, they, you know, they set up these vendors and they maybe only have a handful of vendors. I, the school district, I, I, I taught high school. Uh, uh, that was the first gig I had out of college. And uh, I was talking to the people at school. They said, well, you got to get into a program. And, and it turned out to be like the stupidest decision I ever made in my life. Uh, well, no, I've made stupider decisions, uh, but it's right up there. Uh, and because well, I changed school districts, I couldn't take the plan with me. It was just a freaking disaster. It was a big annuity plan. And, and the reason I couldn't take it is because the school district I was moving to didn't have the same vendors. And so they converted it into a life insurance policy. It was just a disaster. Um, and so I, I, unfortunately, I think the answer is still yes. But I, I do think teachers are a little more tuned into this problem now than they used to be. Okay, can we, before we move on to some of the other things that teachers should be aware of, can you explain, and this might be hard, but as simple as you can, what an annuity is and why it's not the best way? Well, an annuity is a, an insurance-based contract that looks very nice because it says in retirement, you're going to get a certain amount of income and you're not going to have to worry about that. We can pretty much guarantee it like an insurance product. And that sounds very attractive, especially to people that aren't making a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, if you happen to, you know, teachers have the advantage of public school teachers have the advantage of uh, uh, being state employees. So they, they usually have a state retirement fund that they have access to. Um, and so that's sort of appealing. And then here's this, so that would be a lifetime income. And then you park this other bit of lifetime income next to it. That looks very appealing. The trouble is these tend to be kind of high, high cost. Uh, that is the, the fees tend to be high and the returns are not very high. Why? Because it's such a safe product. And so, you know, I understand why people might move that way. And, and for many folks, that's maybe a good idea. But the, the, the thought that this is the only advice you got Right. And you didn't line it up with the other things that you could have possibly done and looked at the, I'm sorry, econ guy, the costs and benefits, uh, and then make your decision based on uh, what you regard to be most important for you and your family. Yeah, there's a lot of fine print with annuities. Yeah. All right. So if you were to break down, and I know your book is, is filled with advice for teachers, um, but if you were to break down the top three things the advice that you would give, actionable steps that teachers could take to, yes, be a millionaire themselves, what would that be? Well, a couple of things. Uh, that first one is you, you've got to get your spending and saving under control. So you have to get that uh, going. So we have a chapter on budgeting and some tips for teachers about how to do that. Uh, another factor that teachers often have, and this is not, I don't want to overgeneralize, but teachers are often interested in earning a little extra money. Now, many teachers wish to be off and not work during the summer mm -hmm. to spend time with family or, or whatever. That's fabulous. That'd be a, one great reason to go into teaching. But me, when I taught high school, uh, I wanted to teach summer school. I wanted to do other work. I, I, I wanted to make money. Uh, and I always had side gigs. 
Uh, in fact, I still have side. My whole life, I think, I've had side gigs. Yeah, you're supposed to be and, retired uh, now, aren't you? Uh, well, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Did I tell you I have a new book out? So anyway, but... <laughs> Okay. Uh, and so we have a chapter on earning extra income and how to how to be careful about that and, and and a few tips about you know starting your own business. We actually have a they're not exactly case studies, but I've known so many teachers that well one teacher I knew uh, used to uh, do tours. You know he, he was a world history teacher and he'd take kids to Europe mm-hmm. right in the summertime. Well, guess what? After about fifteen years, he retires and he just goes over to run his own travel company. I know another teacher that runs a, uh, provides for the concessions for a great, a huge summer festival. This is a massive job he does every summer. He makes more money at that job than he does, he happens to be a private school teacher, than he does wow. in his private school. And it's it's actually, his summer gig allows him to do what he really loves, which is teach in this uh, uh, private school. And so a lot of teachers have opportunities to earn income on the side. So that was one of the things that came out of our survey for teachers. Uh, the investment basics are really important because for a lot of different reasons that we don't have time to get into everything. But sometimes I worry teachers in states that have very solvent retirement systems, Wisconsin is a good example of that, that sometimes it maybe encourages teachers not to get as active as they should mm-hmm. in terms of saving and investing because they've got this little pad that an awful lot of people in the country don't have. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then I worry about the teachers like in states like Illinois, where um, they've underfunded their pension program terrifically. And so you have to worry about what might ultimately happen there, uh, given the uncertainty. So far, they haven't defaulted on it, but, uh, you know, it doesn't look good. Do you feel like a lot of teachers are relying heavily on that pension so when they are making this extra money on the side during the summer they're not socking it away that's what i worry about uh that they're not socking it away uh they're feeling but it it, uh they're they're feeling somewhat financially secure down the road because they can go get a calculator from the state retirement plan and it'll you just enter what you think your salary will be and how many years you taught and click 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 you know the formula spits out a number and you can say, oh, that's a pretty good number. If you live in Illinois, it's a pretty amazing number. If you live in a state like Florida or Wisconsin, it's not such an amazing number. But those programs are quite solvent. So at least you wouldn't have to worry. Wisconsin always is rated, if not number one, usually number one. And they're always in the top three mm. uh, in terms of it being a very solvent, very conservative program, very well-managed program. Illinois is sort of just the opposite. So, yeah, I do worry about that. Uh, and so teachers wouldn't necessarily know to take advantage of, say, the 403B. And when teachers earn this extra income, like these couple examples I just threw at you there, they don't know to get a SEP, Simplified Employee Pension, which is a, it's a basically another 403B. And you can take your income from your job, uh, especially if you're running your own business, and drop it in there. And then there's a maximum you can put in. But that's another beautiful tax advantage way that you can save. And, of course, you can distribute that. You know, that's just the shell. So you can get a nice distribution in stocks and and diversify across several sectors. Now, do you are you familiar with New York State? Because we're in New York here. Uh, is it well funded? Yes, it's it's 90 percent funded. Uh, so unlike Illinois, uh, it's in in much better shape. It's not portable. Uh, teachers uh, have to be in longer than three years to uh, get vested. 
So on most criteria, according to the National Council of Teacher Quality, uh, the New York system doesn't rate so high, wow. but on the big thing is, is it well-funded? It does rate quite well. Can you clarify something for the rest of us who don't have a full understanding of the teacher pension? Right. Do they put money into this or is this just you get the job as a teacher and this is waiting for you? It depends on the state. Ah, okay. There are 50 states and there are 50 different pension programs. And in some states, teachers do contribute. Uh, some states have moved teachers to uh, basically 401k programs and other teachers maintain a traditional so I taught in Wisconsin. Now I taught uh, high school in uh, Minnesota, but I taught in higher ed in Wisconsin for you know almost 30 years. I, I don't even want to tell you. I mean, I didn't have to pay anything. Oh gosh, we're no so jealous. Contribution. Yeah. Oh geez, you know. But it's a modest pension. But there it is. But I know teachers from Illinois who retired and made full salary and full oh. benefits. Gosh, and some Lord. teachers, teachers in New York City, my understanding is after 45 years, they retire at full salary and full benefits. So you're, you're not talking about a tiny amount of money here. This is New York City. We're talking, you know, could be $120,000, $130,000. See, now this is going to be terrible to say because we do adore and love our teachers, but we are so darn jealous of that. Well, you see, in a state like New York, yeah, uh, you know, there, the teachers make a lot of money. But if you go to Florida, no, uh, they're just raising starting teacher salaries to the national average right now under Ron DeSantis. They're raising it, um, you know, but Florida teachers, uh, Arizona teachers are paid very differently than California or New York teachers. Yeah. So that's why it's a little hard. Like I say, the, the first thing about teacher pensions is there's 50 of them and uh, they all vary a little bit. But they they do have this this general feature of. You have to be in there a few years to get vested, which is a real, this really screws a lot of teachers because you could teach, I think, I think in Florida, you have to be in eight or 10 years. Well, you, you work for five or six years and you decide to stay home and raise your kids or something and you don't get the pension. You're not vested. You know, you should be vested at a lower level, but you know, you shouldn't, you should be vested. That's why this National Council on Teacher Quality says they should all be vested in three years. They should be portable. So there's there's are some issues in here. But yes, it's a defined benefit plan, right? I mean, who gets that? So in your, now put your economist hat on, not your teacher hat that <laughs> reaped the benefits of a pension, your economist hat. How does that impact the school systems, the funds, the the, the taxes? And do you feel like that is good to sustain to keep to never get rid of or um you we have examples of well-managed state retirement plans like wisconsin and a few others there's about seven or eight that are regarded as being very well managed and then there's illinois right and so the illinois taxpayers are severely hurt by this very incompetent program they've got that i shouldn't say incompetent it's underfunded so I, I think generally, uh, you know, there are many examples of this being well done, but there are very many examples of it being very poorly done. And that's one of the reasons that, that you know, New York, I think per capita per child is paying $24,000, which is twice what we pay per child uh, in Florida, twice. 
Okay, so now let's talk to everybody else who earns a modest income, isn't a teacher, though, doesn't have the pension as a fallback. What can they be doing right now to help them feel secure financially, get to that point where they can say, oh, yeah, that's right, I'm rich? Good. The only way to get ahead financially is to spend less than you receive. Uh, you know, so I take people through a budgeting activity that you've, you know, similar things you've talked about many times with your guests. And let's, let's find 5%. Let's see if we can find 10%. And let's pull that out. Let's make sure that we've built up a sufficient emergency fund. So once we start really building your retirement savings, we don't have to invade the retirement savings if you lose the transmission in your car. Uh, and things like that. And then once we've got the saving thing started, then we can start, you know, we first we max out on the 403B. If you've got a SEP, then we max out on that. Uh, if you're a regular, well, I'm saying 403B, that's the teacher world. The 401K would be in the regular private sector world. Um, and then uh, and then we can talk about investment accounts once we've maxed out on all the tax advantaged accounts. And then suddenly, in a few years, you wake up and you look at your statement and you say, well, my goodness, look at that. I, I've suddenly, and then, th then is when the real magic happens, it becomes reinforcing. You're saying, hey, this saving thing is a lot of, this is really cool. Look what I'll be able to do uh, later in retirement with my kids' education and, and things like that. But if you don't get started, so even if people with low and modest income they still have to make choices. And it's not how much you make, it's what you decide to do with what you make. And I mean, we've got story after story of people that have done this, but you know, it, it, I don't pretend that it's easy. Uh, you know, I know it's hard. It's like dieting. <laughs> All the benefits come later. The hard part is right now when you can't have that hamburger uh, and fries that is looking you right in the face, you have to sacrifice that in order to get these future benefits. But after a while, the hamburger doesn't look so good because what you're seeing happening in the other parts of your life are, are just, are, are even more satisfying. When you fit into those skinny jeans and it feels comfortable, that is that is the reward you're looking for, right, Mark? We are on the same page on <laughs> this know? one. Uh, I, I think that analogy to diet and exercise is yeah. really true. I mean, when you first start exercising, all you get is pain. When you first start saving, all you get is pain. And, but after a month, after two months, after three months, after a year, you feel so much better. And then it becomes, then it becomes that habit. And now, now it's sort of get out of my way. This is what I do now. Yeah. And that's what a lot of us crave, uh, the security and everything will be okay. And in this way, in this strategy, you will definitely get that security you're craving. Yep. That's right. Uh, you know, these people that are trying to sell you quick rich things and uh hey buy this buy that yeah. here's a hot hot tip on that no there's no silver bullet well but i'd like i like to say the secret sauce is you have to spend less than you receive and then you have to put that plan into action mark you're fantastic how can we uh how can we follow you where can we find your book and uh and all the other things that you're working on. Okay, well the book is called Teachers Can Be Financially Fit: Economists Advice for Educators. If you just tap that in uh, in an Amazon search, it will come right up. Uh, it, we're working right now on a website uh, that should be up shortly where we're going to offer webinars and virtual reading groups for teachers and lots of resources. And the other thing, if you don't mind, just 
passing you know this other word why teachers are such an important group just think about it if your teacher your second grade teacher feels financially secure now she's going to be so much more interested and confident to show her kids how to be financially secure that and that's the thing about teachers that you don't get from other groups is that but our last chapter in the book is don't keep it a secret share it with your students and your colleagues at your school thank you mark we really appreciate it hey it's my pleasure sandy it's great to meet you take a seat at the kids table money expert susan beecham is here founder of money savvy generation hi susan hey sandy this is my favorite part of the show i just adore hearing from the little moochies don't you they're precious <laughs> they are and today we kind of asked them a tough question what does it mean i know i know what does it mean to invest and investing it means like if you're starting a business and if you're in charge but someone else is in charge they might ask for like 50 percent, and that's called investing it's if you you can invest in the stock market you like put money to something like you can invest in disney tesla things like that and you put money into something and then you get money out like on shark tank they want to invest they want people to invest in their company for a certain, they need money from them and then they get a certain amount of money back. What does it mean to invest? I've heard that word a lot. And I don't know, I forget what it means. Invest. <laughs> I love that she's heard that word a lot. So um, that's the beauty of kids. They always tell us what's going on at home and who's talking about what. But what I think is very interesting in listening to these kids is you know, most people think of the word invest and they think of the stock market, but not these kids. They think of entrepreneurship. I thought and that was fascinating, too, because if you were to ask me, I would go right to stock market. Right. Well, with shows like Shark Tank mm -hmm. and um, their age range, so they're allowed to start businesses like lemonade stands, dog walking businesses, you name it. The research tells us, again, here I am with the research, the kids' entrepreneurial instincts are like close to 90% in the early years. So like early elementary, middle school. And by the time we get to high school, we beat that down to less than 20%. Okay. We almost discourage it. We don't encourage it. So I think the idea that they're already thinking entrepreneurial is a great way. Investing in yourself. It's a more um, relevant way to talk about investing with kids because it's something they can experience. And the whole point of investing is to get kids to stop, think, and reflect. So I'm going to assume that parents have already helped their child master the concept of saving first. Because saving, putting money aside, paying yourself first, that's the first step before you get to investing. So investing is a long-term goal. So you can ask that little moochie at the end, if you're seven years old, <laughs> what do you think you might want 10 years from now? And then you do the math for them, seven, 17. I've asked kids for years in first grade what they want 10 years from now. And every boy tells me a car, uh, yeah. make, model number, engine, power, color. They oh, got I it all it. down. They got it all down. 
Help them set a goal for something they want or need. If they're young, let's just make it a year. For kids who are a little bit older, you can go seven to 10 years out. That's what we do with adults. Something you want or need seven to 10 years from now. Again, have them take that goal and actually put it in writing, draw a picture of it, put it somewhere where they can see it. Then talk about what investing means. Investing can mean investing in yourself, putting money aside for your college education. Investing can mean starting a little small business, talking to mom and dad or grandparents about getting some expense money so that they can buy the cups and the lemons that they need for a lemonade stand. Then there's investing in the stock market. Investing in the stock market is something kids absolutely are capable of understanding. A lot of people have said to me, really, really, they're seven years old. It's just another purchase. It's just another transaction. Have them pick a company that they really like. For my girls who loved pets, that I would never let them get. They liked Petco. <laughs> so, you know, we had the advantage of being able to go to the Petco store. I said, okay, you like Petco? Let's see what one share of stock would cost. But before we do that, let's go kick the tires. So we drove over to Petco. We saw all the animals, walked around the store. You know, this is a very concrete way of teaching them how to evaluate a company. And then we went home and we went online and we looked up Petco and then virtually bought a share of stock. So how do you virtually buy a share of stock? So we printed money. Yes, we did. I actually looked into this. If you take an image of money that you can find online. You don't print both sides. You are not breaking any laws. Ah, so, okay. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And we printed enough money to buy that share of stock. And once a week, not every day, once a week, we would go and look at the stock. We'd read some of the headlines. We'd talk about what was happening. And was this a good company to invest in? If we decided it was a good company to invest in and we took our virtual money and we laid it out and we made the purchase. Then we talked about when the company makes money, you make money. When the company loses money, you lose money. Risk. And that's something that kids can totally wrap their heads around. You just need to let them know that there's a chance you could lose money. Would you suggest actually having them go through the steps of saving enough money to actually for real buy a share of the stock, even though there's a lot of risk tied into it. Hey, if they pick the right stock down the road when they're adults, it could actually pay out in physical real money. I've always had a problem with virtual versus real money, Mm. but to teach a child, because it's so easy when it's not your money, you make different decisions. I understand that. That, you know, if it's just virtual money, you're going to take a little more risk than you would with your real money. That's why I have parents go through this virtual step first. And then if a kid, if a kid is really engaged 
with that particular company say, are you ready to use some of uh, your own money? All right. So that comes first. Okay. I see. And then when you say to the child, are you ready to use your own money? And they say, no, that's a great conversation. Well, tell me why not. I actually think because of what we've talked about in the past, that the risk isn't going to bother them as much as it bothers mom and dad. I think they're all about risk. Uh, I spent time with first graders doing virtual investing, and these kids were worse than day traders. <laughs> and, and we want them to have experience with it. And I'll, Sandy, for years, parents have been on me not to talk about investing with their kids. They just want to talk about saving. They just want to talk about why spending. Yeah. And they just want to talk about donating. But investing... And I tell them, if you do not know or do not teach your child how to invest, you're pushing them through the gateway to poverty. You have to be able to be comfortable with the idea of long-term investing. And it's fascinating because when we uh, when we ask listeners on, on Facebook, you know, what do you wish they taught in school? A lot of people said, I wish I learned about investing in the stock market. And how many people would be more inclined from day one to open their 401ks from day one to open their 403bs susan thank you where can we follow you how can we find you you can of course go to my blog which is susanbeecham.com and over to the right there's an investing tab and there's lots more information and discussion about investing tips and techniques and then you can find some of our money savvy generation award-winning products and as well, some free resources at our website, moneysavvy.com. Wonderful. Have a good weekend. You too. So much good stuff. If there's ever a topic that you want us to answer in No Dumb Questions, just let me know if there's a guest you want me to try to get on the show or if you need help talking to the kids about money. This podcast is for you. Email me anytime, sandywaters989 at gmail.com. Cheers to each and every single one of you who is proud to say that you are on your way to being a financially confident woman. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Seven Figures Podcast. Click subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Seven Figures is sponsored by Advantage Federal Credit Union.